Hi, welcome to More Christ. Today I'm joined, I'm joined by the amazing Dr. Robert Alter. Robert is an American professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley, where he's taught since 1967. He published his monumental translation of the Hebrew Bible in 2018. So just to give people a bit of an introduction, Robert, can you tell us a bit about your background and some of the key events in your life that have helped to form your character and which have moved you to write so much about the Bible in particular? Yes, well, I grew up in upstate New York and uh, for various reasons, but which probably I needn't go into here, uh, I had in my teen years a, a very good preparation in Hebrew, both modern Hebrew and biblical Hebrew. And uh, this grabbed me and the Hebrew language became kind of an important part of my identity. Um, actually, by the time I was, I would say 1920 or so, uh, I had a, a near fluency in modern spoken Hebrew and, and I was reading modern Hebrew literature, which actually has continued to be one of my big interests over the years. Uh, however, I also learned uh, Biblical Hebrew, which is actually much closer to the modern language, say, than ancient Greek to modern Greek. I, I would say the gap is approximately Shakespeare's English to, to our English. Um, so I, I, uh, in my college years, I began reading the, the Bible seriously in Hebrew and was quite uh, fascinated, well, uh, more than fascinated, I, I, I was uh, enchanted by, by uh, how extraordinary it is as a, a set of literary texts. Now, I never thought at the time that I would do anything professionally with the Bible. And that, that was something that I stumbled into a kind of fortunate fall. Um, that is, uh, I would, did my, after an undergraduate degree at Columbia in um, uh, majoring in English literature, I, I went on to Harvard where I did a, um, a doctoral degree in comparative literature. Uh, and the structure of the program there was you have one major literature and two minors. So my major was English, which I had been studying before. And somehow I seemed to be able to speak English all right uh, and even read it. <laughs> <laughs> and one minor was French, the other was modern Hebrew. But uh, since there was, alas, nobody to study modern Hebrew with at Harvard, um, I'm, I was pretty much an autodidact in that field. So uh, I went on after teaching four years in the English department at Columbia. I returned there. Um, I got an offer I couldn't refuse from Berkeley. Actually, the, the person who brought me to Berkeley might, might be of some historical interest. He was, he's no longer alive. His name was Alan Renoir, who is the son of Jean Renoir, the, the filmmaker, and of course, the grandson of the painter. A very vivid and zany character, but uh, intellectually serious. So, uh, yeah, Berkeley was looking for somebody. They had recently established comparative literature as a department. They were looking for somebody 
who could handle modern Hebrew literature. And I had begun writing on that. So that I came to their attention and they gave me the, this great offer. So I was very happy and I've never turned back. I love being at Berkeley. And although I'm officially retired, I still teach one course a year and uh, work with some graduate students. Now, uh, here's how I stumbled into the Bible. Um, I was in the 1970s, I was writing uh, for commentary. Uh, later I parted ways with that magazine as they became more and more conservative. But in any case, it was a great audience at the time. And I was supposed to provide them four articles a year. It usually dwindled to three, but there's a lot of writing. And uh, the rubric for the column I was doing was uh, something like Jewish life and letters. Uh, and uh, so I, I was always hunting for topics. And uh, it suddenly dawned on me that while I was never able to explain what was so great about biblical narrative, I thought now, perhaps after working on other later narratives, I could do something with it. So uh, I wrote one article for them, which I considered at the time would be a one-off uh, on the need for a literary perspective on the Bible. And to my surprise, it got an outpouring uh, of letters, uh, both to me personally or, and to the editor. And I thought, well, people are interested in this. I'll write one more article. And pretty soon <laughs> I, I, I was in full momentum, or you might say sliding down the slippery slope, <laughs> writing a book uh, about biblical narrative. And there again, I thought I would stop. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar. Hey, uh, I got to get back to, to writing uh, on Stendhal, Stendhal uh, and Nabokov, which I, I have not abandoned, I want to assure you. Um, and, uh, but the, the reception of the narrative book was um, really very encouraging. And in fact, one of the most gratifying reviews that any of my books have gotten was from Frank Kermode, uh, who um, later we became friends uh, and collaborators. I, I didn't know Frank at all at the time. Uh, and that was in the New York Times book review. So I thought, well, people like this, maybe I, why not a book on biblical poetry? And by that time, I, I, I was fully into working on the Bible. And over the years, I know this is a little long-winded as a response, uh, I continue to work on the Bible while and teach biblical topics while also still fully engaged in modern literature. That's the, the short of it. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Robert. And um, then why is it vital for others now to see the Bible at the very least as literature and how might that help us with our understanding? Well, uh, Here's the thing about seeing the, the Bible's literature. Um, I've been asked this, uh, I've done a lot of uh, talks for popular audiences, uh, and more than once someone has said, well, now wait a minute, the, 
the Bible is a religious book or is actually a, a collection of books. Um, aren't you violating it by treating it as literature? And my unvarying response, and I, I'm fully convinced of this, is that um, there's no contradiction between looking at the Bible as literature and looking at it as a set uh, of religious texts. And in fact, one enhances the other in the following way. <clears throat> For reasons that we cannot fathom, uh, these ancient Hebrew writers, who after all were in a kind of um, backwater of ancient Near Eastern culture, a little sliver uh, of uh, a, a sometimes independent state uh, surrounded by great <laughs> empires. Great empires with wonderful material culture that dwarfed anything you can find, or anything that the archeologists have found in ancient Israel. But for reasons that I cannot explain, this little culture produced writers of genius, both in, in prose narrative and in poetry. And when these writers set about conveying their new vision of God and creation and human nature and history and the realm of morality and the covenant between God and Israel, they chose to cast it in very artful stories and in uh, sometimes altogether brilliant poetry. So my contention all along has been that if you want to dial in the religious vision of the sundry biblical writers to a fine focus, you, you have to attend to the literary vehicle in which that vision is conveyed. And that's why I ended up doing my own translation because uh, I, in the end, I was appalled by the way uh, modern translators have run roughshod over the, the literary fashioning of the biblical texts. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Robert. And um, I want to take it back to yourself now and ask you, just um, in your own life, are there any persons who've been especially inspirational or influential that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, and not a lot of people, but um, one thing, a, a book that I read when I was an undergraduate that has meant a great deal to me over the years and which um, uh, I think is, is the standout work of literary criticism written in the 20th century is Erich Auerbach's Mimesis, the representation of reality in Western literature. It's a grand edifice uh, and uh, uh, many of the chapters speak to me, including what, what he has to say about uh, uh, Balzac, Flaubert, and Stendhal, and uh, the chapter on Virginia Woolf at the end. But you know, the Dante chapter is one of the whole thing is dazzling. But of course, the first chapter, which is a comparison between uh, a, a passage in the Odyssey and Genesis 22, uh, 
the Binding of Isaac um, really got to me. That is, Auerbach basically, aside from the fact that he was a brilliant reader, he basically contended that the true origins of modern literary realism were not on the Homeric side, but actually in the Hebrew Bible. So that's something I pondered over the years. And in a way, when I got to write about the Bible, uh, uh, that, that I made full contact with, with um, uh, Auerbach and in a way extended in, in multifarious detail the, the program that, that he had hinted at. Marvelous, thank you for that, Robert. Um, I want to ask you next about some of your work. So just beginning with the pleasures of reading in an ideological age, we'll not go into too much detail on that one, but um, you start off saying things, peculiar things have clearly been happening in the academic, academic study of literature. You said back when it was first released, and I think how much stranger now, unfortunately, but um, you aim to correct a distancing in the more extreme cases and actual estrangement from the experience of reading literature. So uh, I want to ask you, um, what were your main goals with that book and how successful do you think that they have been? Uh, how successful that book has been? <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, I, I, I'm fond of that book. It, it was a kind of uh, uh, credo for me as a, a literary scholar and critic and a teacher. Uh, the, the teaching is very important for me. And I've always loved teaching and found that, that there's an intrinsic connection between my teaching and, and my writing. Now, when I um, finished the book, I thought, well, this is going to stir up a lot of controversy because <laughs> people in uh, the academic world, at least the, the American one, which I know well, uh, are going to, to vehemently object and there will be debates and that should be interesting, maybe even pr productive. Now, none of that happened. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, don't know what, that, that is, the, there were hardly any academic reviews of the book. Uh, it got some nice reviews in, in the popular press. And I think it, what the story was, uh, this is what I came to realize, is that um, the academic study of literature by then, uh, that was, uh, let's see, um, I'm trying to remember when the book came in the late 1980s. It had become so factionalized that each faction was speaking its own language and ignoring the other factions. And when the pleasures of reading appeared, I think that many people in the academic world simply shrugged their shoulders and said, well, this is irrelevant. It doesn't speak to us. Uh, we we uh, uh, don't want, are not gonna bother to uh, respond. Um, so I, I don't think that at least in the academic world it, it had much of a, an impact. But l let me tell you one, uh, to me, somewhat amusing thing that happened. Um, one leftist critic 
uh, wrote a, a negative review of the book. Uh, and um, he said uh, uh, that that Alter does not realize when he criticizes uh, uh, the ideological um, uh, trend uh, of literary studies that his own work is underpinned by his own bourgeois ideology, which is an argument we've heard be before. But then at the very end of the review, he said, um, uh, something instructive. He said, what a, a pity that Alter has produced this tendentious and regrettable book when he's uh, the author of the classic, The Art of Biblical Narrative. Now, I smiled at that because I said, what the reviewer doesn't realize is that the very same assumptions about literature that uh, on which uh, the uh, uh, pleasures of reading is based are the assumptions of my book on biblical narrative. Yeah, I think I want to ask you about that, actually. So um, something which you mentioned in that book, which I think is important, is the absurdity of reducing literature to the mere byproduct of, say, material circumstances and right. um, mentioning that ideological theories which would suggest that the novel, for example, that it's born of bourgeois values. However, you suggest that many novels from Dostoevsky and others were incredibly subversive and um, you referenced the Bible as well as that. So can you tell us that um, a, bit about, a bit about that and why this more nuanced understanding is vital for us to really cultivate? Yes, well, I think that, that uh, great writers, in the full momentum of their imagination are capable of uh, calling up narrative situations and characters and the commitments of characters that may well be contrary to, to uh, their own beliefs. So, you know, let's say, uh, uh, Dostoevsky in creating Svidrigailov, uh, an utterly riveting character and an embodiment of evil, right? Yeah. Uh, but th there is a kind of um, entering into the imagination of evil as he represents uh, Svidrigailov, uh, which is deeply instructive, illuminating for readers. So that's what a, a great imaginative writer does. If a writer is using his novel as a, a vehicle, basically a, a didactic vehicle to uh, convey his own principles, the book becomes a, a bore and there's not much point in reading it. <laughs> Yeah, wonderful. I think that's most helpful. And um, that takes us on nicely to your translation, actually, I think, of the Hebrew Bible, a translation with commentary and the art of Bible translation as well, which I want to talk about. So just to begin, I want to quote my countryman, Seamus Heaney, who we both know and love. 
Alter's uh, translation, he said, can be fairly described as a godsend. The foundational texts are here given their due and prose at once modern and ma magnificently cadenced, immediately readable, immensely learned, and an education and restitution. So just to begin, what makes your translation distinct from others out there? You've already hit up upon this. And how do you hope that it will serve the public? Well, yes. Uh, uh, and maybe I, I might talk a little bit about the reception of the translation not now there have been a lot of very enthusiastic reviews but uh, i don't want to get into the reviews so much which would be patting myself on the back but rather <laughs> uh responses uh, personal responses that i've gotten to readers because uh, you're probably aware that in the age of email uh readers are much more inclined to to write authors than they used to be. They don't, you don't need a postage stamp. You, uh, anybody can get my email address by going to Comparative Literature, University of California, Berkeley, and so forth. Uh, okay, uh, so how is my translation different? Oh, I'll, I could talk about that for an hour and a half, <laughs> not to do that, but I'll, maybe the best way is to give two illustrations. Um, one has to do with rhythm in the prose. Now, of course, everybody knows, including the, those uh, unfortunate committees of translators who worked in the latter part of the 20th century. And I, I make no distinction among uh, uh, religi religious groups here. That, that mm -hmm. is the... Uh, uh, the, the Protestant translation done in England, uh, the, the Catholic Jerusalem Bible, uh, the, the Jewish publication, they're, they're all equally bad. <laughs> Sometimes at a certain point, one is worse than the other. So, okay. so um, let's take rhythm for a minute. Um, as far as I can tell in the languages that, that I read, all first-rate literary prose is rhythmic in some way or another. And, and the rhythms are significant. That is, you take Moby Dick, and if some fiendish editor revised the manuscript to remove all those wonderful iambic cadences that are reminiscent uh, of uh, Shakespeare and Milton, or uh, uh, another kind of cadence that's reminiscent of the, the King James version uh, of Psalms and of Job, you, you wouldn't have a great novel <laughs> anymore. You would have a kind of interesting story about a crazed sea captain who's hunting down a, a, a white whale, but you wouldn't have this tremendous resonant uh, uh, epic structure uh, that, that Moby Dick is. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big fan of Melville. Uh, so uh, when I began translating, it dawned on me halfway through Genesis 1 that the rhythms of the Hebrew prose were very meaningful. And, and I'll, I'll give you one example, uh, it was my first uh, discovery that I had to pay attention to rhythm. 
when I came to the um, uh, the verse about halfway through chapter one that reports the creation of the heavenly luminaries, this is the way I translated it without even thinking. I said, okay, God created, and then what follows is, in my version, the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. Now, after I put that down, uh, I write by hand. Uh, after I put that on paper, I looked at it and I said, wait a minute, why dominion of? Why did I do that? There was a technical um, grammatical feature that I won't go into in the Hebrew, but, but the real reason was this. I'm now going to recite those few words in the Hebrew. The exact Hebrew equivalent of those words that, that, that I, I just uh, pronounced. Et ha-ma'or ha-gadol l'memshelet ha-yom, v'et ha-ma'or ha-katon l'memshelet ha-layla, v'et ha-kochavim. So you see, l'memshelet ha-yom, l'memshelet ha-layla is exactly equivalent rhythmically to dominion of day and dominion of night. Now, a skeptic might say, so what? You know, it's... The, the, the kind of uh, embellishment that, that you literary types fiddle around with, but it's not really important. I think it is important. Why? It's a wonderful cadence, which comes to a conclusion with, and the stars. Now, why is that cadent meaning, cadence meaningful? Well, this is the priestly version of creation. And that version has a vision of, creation as a beautifully choreographed, harmonious pro process. And when you get to the, the verse that, that reports the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, subliminally, you were picking up in the rhythm, the harmony of creation. And so if you don't get something like the Hebrew rhythm, you're, you're losing a sense of the, the grandeur in, in this vision of creation. So uh, that is certainly what I don't think any previous translator of the Bible has um, uh, attempted to uh, find an equivalent in the target language uh, of the rhythms of the Hebrew. So that, that's certainly one way in which my, my translation, and I hope my, my little example from Genesis uh, illustrates why this isn't a trivial thing. And it, it's a small example of the intrinsic connection between literary shaping and religious vision. Now, uh, let me give you uh, a different kind of example, and then I, I won't go on because, uh, as I said, I could talk endlessly on this. Um, repetition is very much part of the literary art of the, the narratives in, in the Bible. Uh, the, uh, the writers use a small vocabulary. I think by no means the entire vocabulary available to ancient speakers of Hebrew. Because you see the poetry, there's a much bigger lexicon. 
So there was some kind of tacit agreement that, that you only use a limited number of words and a kind of primary vocabulary. Uh, for example, uh, Noah's Ark. And Noah's Ark went on the surface of the water 40 days and 40 nights. Now, uh, the, the moderns render this, uh, uh, the King James gets it exactly right. The moderns render it as floated, sailed, uh, whatever. Uh, and uh, I, I think that they, they lose the, the wonderful dignity of the original. Uh, so if you're working with a, a limited vocabulary, then it's an open invitation to repeat words in some significant way. Now, uh, the modern translations don't do that because they think that repetition is boring, it's clunky, you know, your seventh grade teacher told you uh, not to uh, repeat the same word, but to find the synonym in the next sentence, but that, that isn't the way the ancient Hebrew writers work. So I'll give you one small example. When Abraham takes Isaac uh, uh, to the mountain, uh, to sacrifice him, the narrator says, in my translation, and Abraham said to his lads, let me and the lad go up and worship, and after we shall return to you. Now, I, I'm pretty sure that I'm the only translator of the Bible who, well, I, I don't know about Hungarian translators and Swedish <laughs> translators, but in English, who repeats this same word, lad, lad, which at first blush you might think is uh, clumsy and you have to do something about it. But the, the Hebrew word that I've represented uh, as lad, I know that's more an Americanism than, than the way you use lad uh, on the other side of the, the thing. <laughs> Uh, the um, uh, a na'ar, that's the Hebrew word, is uh, both a young boy or sometimes even a young man and um, also uh, a anyone in a position of subservience to somebody else. You can see the connection between the two. So uh, in the first instance, uh, he's referring to Abraham, uh, not Abraham, the, the narrator is referring to Abraham's servants, or they may even be his slaves. And that's everybody translates it as servants. But I think that, that there is a wrenching feeling in first, Abraham speaks to his lads, and then he uses, in his little speech, he uses the very same word to refer fondly to the son that he thinks he's about to kill. Uh, that is, when, when uh, in Absalom's rebellion in the book of Samuel, uh, David famously says to his uh, troops, deal gently with the lad Absalom. So even though Absalom has usurped his throne and is threatening to kill him, 
he's still his son and he loves him. Uh, and so the, the, uh, there's a kind of poignant, painful contrast between the, the, the two uses of the same word, one for servants and the other for beloved son. So uh, this is the kind of thing that, that I try to pay attention to in my translation, which I think has been largely ignored by my predecessors. Yeah, thank you for that, Robert. And thank you for all the wonderful labors of love you've undertaken to do it over the many years. And um, just regarding your own preferences, then, I guess, um, what are one or two of your favorite books and stories from the scriptures? And why have they resonated with you so much, aside from those ones you mentioned? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, for the sake of illustrative neatness, uh, I'll take one book that's poetry and one book that's prose narrative. I think my, my, my favorite uh, book of prose narrative is uh, the book of Samuel. Now, you know, we'd say 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, but that's uh, simply because um, th they couldn't get it all into one scroll in the ancient period. So there are Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, but, but it's one book. And in fact, now the book divisions and the chapter and verse divisions are later. They're not original to the text. So the, uh, the story really ends in, um, uh, at the beginning of the book of Kings in the second chapter of first Kings. Now, why do I love this uh, story so much? I think it's perhaps the, the, the greatest representation of a human life evolving through time uh, that has come out of the whole ancient world. That's, you have David at first, um, the, uh, uh, the young shepherd, uh, the, uh, uh, the lyre player who becomes a kind of uh, musical music therapist for, for the troubled King Saul. Uh, and he's a beautiful young man and everybody loves him. He's charismatic. And then he becomes a military hero. Uh, and as uh, the story advances, you see him admired in uh, the kind of deadly realm of politics. That is, he, he ends up uh, well, in certain of the episodes, he acts quite brutally, and then he ends up being um, almost captive to his henchman Joab, who's the, the commander of, the, of David's military forces. And then you see him take another fatal step in the Bathsheba story, mm -hmm. where uh, things turn around and, and he basically begins to lose his grip. And there's one wonderful moment uh, where he's been, uh, Bathsheba has given birth to a son. It was David's son, conceived in adultery, of course. And um, the, the child is very ill. The infant is very ill. So David prays, he fasts, he puts on sackcloth and so forth. And he does this for quite a few days. And then his courtiers bring word 
that the child has died. So he walks out and he, he bathes and anoints himself and puts on fresh clothes, comes back and asks for a feast to be set out before him. So his courtiers say, what are you doing? You know, when the, the baby was still alive, you, you fasted and you put on sackcloth and you prayed and you slept on the ground. And now that, that you know that he's died, you, you're having a feast. And David says, uh, I am going to him. He will not come back to me. And this always grabs me by the throat. That, that, that is, it, it's a different stage in David's life. Before that, every thing, this is quite consistent. Everything that he says has some political motivation. And you often don't know uh, to what extent he means what he says, to what, what extent it's political calculation. And now, all of a sudden, as after his son has died, he faces the fact of his own mortality. Uh, I am going to him, he will not come back to me. And then I'll skip many other episodes, but at the end of the story, we, we see David failing. Um, he, uh, uh, he's shivering in his bed and needs a beautiful young woman with whom he's not capable of having sex anymore to lie in bed with him and warm him. And he seems to be befuddled and is really bamboozled by, uh, by Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba in, into believing that, that he had conferred the, the kingship, the succession to the kingship on Solomon. And then there's David on his very deathbed, sounding like um, a capo de mafia in The Godfather. That is, he gives Solomon a, a hit list of enemies to take care of after he's gone. So th this wonderful sense uh, of the, the contradictions and changes and deterioration through uh, biology of a human life is like nothing else we, we have from the ancient world. Okay, so that's why I love the David story. And it's all told with brilliant dialogue and uh, uh, subtle adumbration of character and so forth. Now, Job, uh, I am uh, passionate about for two reasons. First, I think it's the very acme of poetry in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and uh, uh, among the, the greatest pieces of poetry that have come down to us from the, the ancient world. I mean, uh, jo Job's death wish poem at the beginning of the poetic section, which is the bulk of it, uh, uh, of the book, uh, chapter three, is devastating and wrenching. Uh, and there are a few expressions in literature uh, of uh, human despair. Uh, uh, that can match it. And then, of course, the voice of the whirlwind at the end is such a, a dazzling panoramic vision uh, of the, the 
vitality and energy and even violence of nature uh, that is uh, told with, with um, the a kind of magisterial command of um, poetic means. Maybe I'll give you one illustration of that. Uh, when God speaking from the whirlwind is evoking creation, he, he says something like, um, uh, he asked Job, was he there when uh, the, the uh, water gushed forth from the deep? And I'm quoting only approximately, and missed its swaddling cloths. So why swaddling cloths? See, uh, he, the Job poet uses similes and metaphors that nobody else in the Bible does. This is kind of surprising. Well, the first thing is it is a wonderful visual image that is, uh, as to my understanding, uh, swaddling cloths, they didn't have diapers in the ancient world, would have been fairly lengthy strips of wide cloth, white cloth that would have been wound around the, 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 the baby's nether parts. Now, that is a striking image of the, the kind of lozenges of white fog over the ocean in certain climatic situations. But also, it's a birth image or close to birth because of the, the, the suggestion of an infant. And that whole part of the poem is full of birth images, which are um, answering the death images, the, the, the desire never to have been born that Job in uh, chapter three expresses. So the, the human speaker talks of death, the divine speaker talks of the emergence of life. There's a, you can see how the, the poetry serves the religious vision. Now, what I would add is um, to uh, the dazzling poetry that really uh, moves me deeply is that, that it is such a courageous, unblinking confrontation with uh, something that, that I think all religious people wrestle with, which is um, how can you explain if there's a good God that good people suffer, that uh, my neighbor's kid got run over by a car, that, that uh, my, my wife contracted cancer and so forth. So it, it, even if not everybody can accept the answer that's proposed in the voice from, from the, the whirlwind, it, it probes a basic fact uh, of the human condition in, in a profound way. Okay. Yep, absolutely. That's beautiful. Thank you, Robert. So unfortunately, we are, we're hitting our time um, for this afternoon or evening. So um, with that in mind, is there anything that you're working on at the moment or that you, you still feel the passion to get involved with in the future that you'd like to tell us about? Yeah, I, I find that, you know, I've always, I should say this, that 
writing is something uh, I've always loved to do. And uh, as I've written a lot over the years, uh, um, you know, 20 some odd books and dozens and dozens of articles and book reviews. Uh, in this, I resemble my late friend, Frank Kermode, I think. Uh, uh, the writing ha has become more and more um, fluent. Uh, that is, I write with ease uh, and I actually don't use drafts, which is bizarre, I think. Uh, and um, I just like to do it. so. Uh, I actually have two different writing projects now. One is finished in draft and the other is, um, uh, I have uh, three chapters written so far. So the one that's written in draft is actually autobiographical. I never thought I would write anything autobiographical. I said to myself, well, you know, I I'm, I'm not a political leader or a famous actress or whatever. Uh, and who would be interested in my life? And you know, my life has been kind of tame. I haven't uh, uh, crossed the, the, the Pacific in a canoe or, or uh, <laughs> served on the front lines and so forth. But uh, I thought, well, if I focus on how I came to be a writer, and uh, what kind of writer I became in my writing process, that might be interest of, of interest to some people because uh, I do have readers and actually, you know, the, the Bible translation had a lot, has had a lot of readers. Um, so I called, it's a short book, I called it a writing life. Now, it's not devoid of, personal details, but it, it enabled me to exclude some details that I, you know, would be not comfortable going public with. Uh, but, uh, you know, I talk about my growing up in upstate New York, uh, I, um, and the kind of family that, that I had and how I came to Hebrew and so forth. Uh, and about my years as an undergraduate uh, at Columbia, which was a great revelation to me and then at Harvard and, and the the uh, uh, the transit to Berkeley and uh, which was very different from the uh, the Ivy League uh, institutions that I had known in the northeastern part of the United States and uh, then I have two personal chapters um, one is about my wife, Carol Kosman, who is a fine translator from French and uh, is a very literary person. Uh, she had actually started off a PhD in, in uh, English and then uh, dropped it and lived in France for a while and developed a, a, a passionate love for French culture and the French language. Um, so she being Together, we were together 49 years with a very finely sensitive literary person really contributed to, to my career uh, as a, a writer. And we actually collaborated on one book, uh, a biography of Stendhal. Uh, it was also a great love and that chapter is a kind of love letter to my wife. 
And then I, I, the other person that, that I was very close to, closest after my wife, uh, is a, a, a man named uh, Michael Andre Bernstein, who was quite brilliant. And he was my colleague in comparative literature at Berkeley, a, a bit younger than I. Alas, he died of cancer in his early 60s. And we had a great intellectual uh, friendship. You know, we, we talked about books all the time. We shared each other's manuscripts and so forth. Uh, and we also were tennis partners, which is a great bond. <laughs> I can assure <laughs> So that's one project. Uh, it's uh, my agent is now um, circulating it to publishers. I don't know when it'll come out or, or who the publisher will be. Uh, the uh, the second project that, that I've just launched on is a biography of the, the extremely interesting uh, Israeli writer Amos Oz, who died two years ago. And uh, I, I've gotten through his childhood and his early years on the kibbutz and in the Israeli army, and I'm going on with it now. Magnificent. And uh, we look forward to those. And thank you so much for sharing a part of your story today. Robert, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and God bless you. Well, thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure talking with you.